who is in Ohio today. I'll see him this week as we reunion with my side of the family this coming week. And I have a great father-in-law as well that we actually got to see yesterday by surprise. So Sarah and I are both blessed to have dads that are godly and have made a significant influence in our lives. But it's a, it's a joy to be here today. Uh, unlike Phil, my kids don't laugh at my jokes. So that's, that's wonderful. Mine are not nearly as good as his, but I'm going to work on that. I picked up a few to use. It's just a shame that my kids saw them as well today. But I like that one about the TV especially. Yeah, you can watch it as long as you don't turn it on. I think that's, uh, th- that I'm going to use that. Well, let's jump in today. I want to start by, by sharing a, a show that's been airing on, on cable television for about 2011. It's called Ridiculousness. I, I, it's a hard word to say, and I think there's something on the screen. There's a kind of a, uh, an idea or a graphic that comes with that, and I think you can see there's somebody on his head, and that kind of sums up the show. It's a show that uh, takes videos that have gone viral, failed do-it-yourself attempts, and then a panelist, a group of panelists, kind of provide some mock commentary and make fun of the people who have done these things that have not worked. Think guy riding on skateboard down, you know, a cliff. You know, think somebody trying to slide down a pole and landing up on their head. Think people doing things that are going to cause significant injury to their head or parts of their anatomy that hurt a lot if you get hit there, okay? So it's a show that has had a lot of success. Now, it's different than some shows like, say, America's Funniest Home Videos, where people submit shows or clips to be, to, to be uh, on the show. Uh, this one, they, they don't let you do that. So in fact, if you try to submit something, it's refused right away because, you know, God bless them, they don't want people doing crazy things that they might make a profit for, right? So they just scour uh, YouTube and the Internet and they take these videos. And, and I find it fairly fascinating, one, that it's been as successful as it has been, but that people continue to do ridiculous things over and over again Maybe it's in hopes of getting on this show. I think it's just in general people do ridiculous things. Now, why start today's sermon with, uh, w- with kind of a, an illustration from a show that you've probably never seen? In fact, I've never seen the show. I was just fascinated as I was reading about it this week. I, I start there today because I believe as we continue in our series called Heroes from Hebrews, we're going to look today at a story that involves some ridiculous faith. And I'm using the word ridiculous today in all of its positive senses. In most of the time, we use the word ridiculous in a fairly negative sense. Like, come on, that is ridiculous. My kids just did something ridiculous. Why would you do something so ridiculous? And yet I think there's a part that I want to redeem of that word ridiculous and make it a positive sense today. And I think in our story today is we're going to look at the next set of heroes that they embody and they evidence and they demonstrate some ridiculous faith that we need to stop and take notice of. Now, in reality, I think really all of the characters, all of the stories that we see through Hebrews chapter 11 in this hall of faith, these heroes of faith, evidence some pretty ridiculous faith. If we're, if we're going with a positive sense, they're willing to do things that were ridiculous to those around them. And so even as I was thinking through the term ridiculous, I, I looked it up online uh, in the dictionary today to get what does, what is the dictionary, what does Webster say, uh, how do they define it? And this is what I found. Ridiculous, their, their definition was deserving or inviting derision or mockery, something that is absurd. I thought, okay, that, that sounds about right. When I've used the word ridiculous, it's usually I'm, I'm mocking something. There's some level of absurdity that I saw. But if I turn that around into a positive sense, we're going to look at our story today, I think that fits as well. I think about even last week. Who did we talk about last week? I don't know who was here at this campus, but the character was... Anyone? 
Noah, right? Was there anything about what Noah did that would have contributed to some derision, some mockery, absurdity? Yeah, Noah at 500 years old decided to build a boat. There was no water, there was no rain, there was no reason, and it took him 100-ish years to get that boat made. That is ridiculous, right? And there were a lot of people saying, that is ridiculous what you're doing, until the rains fell and the waters came up and the floods came, and all of a sudden that faith didn't look so ridiculous from the world standpoint. So today we come to our fifth week in our summer series called Hebrews, or Heroes from Hebrews, and we're exploring the faith that is demonstrated by these different heroes. Now, as a reminder, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, gives us an idea of what faith looks like when it's demonstrated God's way. And the author of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I think it demonstrates two aspects of faith that I want to land on today. They form our outline today in our two main points. The first one there is the assurance of things hoped for. That's, that's what I'm, I'm holding on to right now, and in a sense, it's God's promises. And we've seen that already through Abel and Enoch and Noah. They're holding on to the promises of God. But we're going to see that especially in our story today. And then the conviction of things not seen. So not only what am I holding to today, the promises of God, but what am I looking forward to? And again, it's not just our characters today. This is what we see all through the different stories in Hebrews is we see this this theme or this demonstration of faith, the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not yet seen. And so it'll, it'll continue to follow us through as we continue the series and the characters that are to come. But I felt like it, it appropriately fit the ridiculous faith that we're going to see today. Now, we started week one kind of exploring what faith is. And then we looked at Abel. And then we looked at Enoch. And then we looked at, at, uh, at Noah last week. And if you remember, the author of Hebrews hits those stories off pretty quickly. Even though there's a lot that happens, I'm sure, in Abel's life, certainly a whole lot that happened in Enoch's life. He lived for 365 years. And then Noah lived quite a few centuries, enough to build an ark. But he kind of moves them pretty quickly. But he lingers now, starting in verse 8 of chapter 11, on the story of Abraham and Sarah, where both dimensions of the faith we just mentioned from, from chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, this idea of assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of, not, of things not seen, both of these aspects of faith shine forth. And so instead of taking a verse, maybe two, to kind of quickly move past the story, for whatever reason, the author of Hebrews lingers on this. So he pauses, and he lands here for, for quite a few verses, a pretty big chunk, one of the largest chunks here. And I'm going to take the bigger part of that chunk today, look at verses 8 through 16, then Josh Orrin will be back next week to finish the last couple of verses and look at Abraham and Isaac, and some more ridiculous faith that we see in that story. The two points that I want us to hear today, that you'll see in your outline, that we'll get to in just a moment, is that they show us that faithfulness requires both holding fast to God's promises and moving forward in the future. Holding fast to God's promises and moving forward in the future. And there's a part of Abraham and Sarah's story that I I feel is a little more personal to me than maybe some of the other stories, as much as I appreciate there's things to learn and glean from. As I've been preparing for this, God has just reminded me some of the uh, the journey that he has me and and my wife Sarah who's with me here today and our children on feels a little ridiculous at times. Um, There there have been some choices we made in the last year that certainly have invited, I think fairly, uh, some derision, some mockery or some absurdity as we are trying to follow 
God in faith, and it's been far from perfect in our lives as well. I've struggled just as Abraham and Sarah have. So I'll weave a little bit of that in today, maybe to illustrate or highlight how this is working out in my life and how it might work in our lives. Well, I'll do that in tandem and parallel as we look at Abraham and Sarah. And so what we can learn is they were, were seeking to hold fast to God's promises, and they were looking towards the future. They were far from perfect, as we'll see. They messed up big time, as all of us do, and yet they were commended for their faith because of those two things. Held fast to God's promises, looked towards the future. So turn in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's start in verse, chapter, or in verse number 8, and we'll continue through verse 16. The author of Hebrews writes, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, this is my favorite line in the whole passage, and him as good as dead, meaning he was really, really old, all right, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak... Thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You can see the author lands here a lot longer than he does in the previous stories. He gives us a lot more context. And in fact, in, chapter, in Genesis, where Moses writes the book of Genesis, we get about 14 chapters that cover the life of Abraham from the beginning of God calling him and giving him his blessing all the way until the end of his death and him handing his blessing off to his son Isaac. Now, I don't have the time. I'd love to just read that whole story. I'm just going to allude as we go through to some parts of those chapters in Genesis chapter 24. I'm sorry, chapter 12 to about 24, uh, 25. We'll point back a few of those things. But I want to start here by saying, as, as Abraham is holding fast to God's promises, we have, to, we have to realize what a ridiculous call God had made on his life. Again, let's go back to that positive sense. But it was ridiculous. We see in these verses right here, it says that, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I don't know about you, but I like to know where I'm going. We're going to travel in a few days to Tennessee. I'm not winging it, right? I'm not just going out like, well, let's just see. I think it's south. If I head that direction, eventually I'm going to get there, right? No, no, no. I want to know where it is. I've looked multiple times. I've checked the routes. I want to know where we're staying. I like the details. So I find this to be ridiculous here that Abraham is called out. He's about 75 years old at this time. All right, he's no spring chicken here. 75 years old, he's established in his homeland. He was called from a place called Ur, which is modern-day Iraq. And he's called to go to a place called Canaan. God's calling him to say, I'm going to give you this land as a promise. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you descendants. If you turn back just briefly, this is probably the only point I'm going to go back to Hebrews 12. Uh, I'm sorry, to uh, Genesis chapter 12. But if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 12 again, let's see what does God promise him. 
as he calls him out, 75-ish years old, established in this land. At this point, we've never heard of Abraham. He's called Abram, and at this point, we don't know any details of him, except Moses tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So his blessing to Abraham involves two primary things. He's going to give him land, and he's going to give him descendants. Now at that point, we find out in the story, Abraham, again, older in years, his wife older in years, they have no children. They're past their childbearing years. Now, a few chapters before that, when we were looking at men that were living to be seven, eight, nine hundred years old, we saw that at times they were 160 when they had children, or later, or might, might have even been longer that they had kids. But the flood has happened, life has changed, people are no longer living as long as they used to. And so it's getting a little bit closer, although they were living a little longer than we do today, it's getting a little bit closer to what we're familiar with and what we know of what's normal for old, for old age. You know, some people do have kids a little bit later, but in general, we're not talking at 75, right? So they had realized that ship has sailed. Yet God was calling them saying, I want you to leave this place and go to a land that I'm going to give you as a promised land, and I'm going to bless you not just with some, I'm going to fill this land with your descendants as many as there are grains on the sand. Now, Abraham and Sarai, again, let's put themselves, Abraham and Sarai at this point of what they're called, let's put, put ourselves in their shoes. That would have felt, what's the word? Ridiculous, right? You with me now? That's why I'm, that's ridiculous. If we had a show and we were doing a reality television, we were highlighting families, the first story I would have is, let me tell you about the story of Abraham and Sarah. They're living in this place called Iraq. They live in tents. They've been there their whole lives. They've never really traveled outside of that area with their family. But you know what? This God came to them and said, you know what? I'm going to call you. I want you to leave and go a long ways to somewhere else that eventually, probably not in your lifetime, but eventually... I'm going to give to you as a promised land. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless you and give you descendants. Sure you are, right? That's why it's ridiculous, because they had to have had their doubts. We know they had their doubts, as we're going to see in just a moment. And yet, Abraham obeyed, and Sarah did too, right? She went with him. How many women have let their husbands pursue things and said, good luck, right? I'm staying here. She went with him. She followed him. And the two of them together, childless at that point, followed after God. Now, we don't know anything about them. We don't know what their lives look like. Well, we are going to find out in a minute. They made some pretty big blunders along the way. So it wasn't because they were exceptional Christians and, and loved God and you know, did everything right at that point. They, they struggled. They did some things that messed up. They weren't perfect. And so we have to see that God's call on them had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with God. God was going to be glorified. God was going to be magnified. It wasn't about what they were going to do. It was about what God was going to do in and through them. It wasn't about their faith at this point. It was 100% God's grace bestowed upon them. And I think we have to land there for just a moment to be reminded that's true in our lives today. Any goodness that we have, any good thing in our lives is by God. The faith that we have ourselves is a gift of God. We looked at that you know, the first week in, in, in the intro to this is faith itself is a gift of God, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. So even the faith that Abraham and Sarah had that was ridiculous was still from God. And yet they are to be commended, and that's why the author of Hebrews does commend them as having this incredible, ridiculous faith is because they, were, they, they heard the call and they followed after God. 
And we could really just stop there for a moment and really for, for the rest of the time and land on that and say, can you imagine if, if our lives, I, I'm thinking about this a lot in my life because I struggle so much in this, if God called me or I read his truth, which we have today, right? We have God's word. And what if I just simply obeyed it? What if I took it at face value and I obeyed God's word? What an impact and a difference it would make on my life. And I don't. Much of the time I ignore it. I, I push it down. I quench the Holy Spirit's prompting in my life. And so part of just my application today was, well, I want, I want to know it, live it, believe it, and obey it. Because you see, it, it requires action. Obedience, true godly obedience that's faith-based and embodies this ridiculous type faith, it requires action. It requires you to do something with it. It requires you to step out in faith. It requires you to leave what's comfortable and to go. It requires you to believe that there is a God who is sovereign and good and faithful and loving and has a perfect plan for you. And it requires a conviction that God is going to come through. I call like maybe the ABCs, your, your, your action, your belief, and your conviction in that way. I think that's what, what Abraham had. Whatever relationship he had with God at that point, his faith was ridiculous because he obeyed and he left and he went even though he didn't see where he was going. Two times in my life I've quit jobs with my wife pregnant and us not knowing what we're going to do. The first was we had three children. We were living in Philadelphia. I was on staff at a church there. Things were not going well. There was just some real internal stuff, some real concerns with leadership there. Sarah was about six, seven months pregnant with our fourth child at that time, and we just felt like we needed to step down. We had no idea what we were going to do, where we were going to do, where we were going to go, and what it was going to look like. And yet we reunified, God prompting us. It was a terribly hard time, and we quit. And we went a number of months of doing things until God led us to somewhere else. About a year and a half ago, the same thing happened. We were in a situation where we just felt like God had something. It wasn't the same exact circumstances, but we knew God was calling us, and he was clearly calling both of us to this, that he had something for us. Uh, I had had some health issues. Sarah and I both had had some health issues uh, around the time of the birth of our sixth child, Jacob. And uh, through that time, God had revealed some other stuff and areas of growth and personal areas of my own sinfulness and struggle and areas of my walk with Jesus and my marriage and my parenting. And so he was already starting to do some stuff in us at that point. And we got to a place that he was saying again, like, I, I want you to step out in faith. Really, God? Because that feels a little ridiculous right now. And, and we eventually did. And it felt ridiculous leading up to it. It felt ridiculous in the moment. I go back to that definition, I'm sure, and invited some mockery and derision and, and feelings of absurdity from others because I certainly felt all of those things myself. And so I think with good reason, others were questioning you know, that process. And it has been a, a, a difficult journey and joyful journey along that way as God has continued to lead us and guide us in that process. And I don't have the time to get into those details, because this isn't about me today, this is about Abraham, but just to say, like, God still does things like that today, and yet it has been far from an easy, perfect journey. There have been many moments of peace and many moments of panic in that process as well, and as we follow God and we obey and we hold to his promises, there are things that he calls us to that are ridiculous, but are trustworthy as well, and we see this in Abraham as well. Uh, the first thing that God told them, if I go back to again, what did he promise them? Land and descendants. Let's land on that descendants one for just a moment. God had promised Sarah and Abraham countless descendants and a land that God revealed to them, but both of these things were promises that were not seen. 
So if we stop on that one, again, point number one here is that, is that faith in, involves holding on to the promises of God. God gave Abraham and Sarah a promise, a promise that they would have descendants. And you know what? When they were 20 or 30, if that promise had come, that, that might have seemed palatable to them, right? Okay, that doesn't feel that ridiculous. Like, we're of childbearing years. But as each decade began to cross off and they were to move forward, don't you think that would have felt a little bit more like a long shot? A little bit more like a struggle? You know, when, when we think of God's promises... If you're like me, like when things are going well, like I love God's promises, like I'm holding on to them. Like, yeah, I'm standing on God, promises of God. I was telling Sarah this the other day. I think of that song. Standing on the promises of, of Christ our King or God our King through eternal ages, let his praises sing. You know, it's just real fun. You sing it. It's like this happy song. That's great when things are going well. But you know what? When things aren't, that's a really irritating song, Right? And you can think of other songs, right, from a, from a perspective. as like, you know what? I'm standing on them, but I don't see them. I don't understand how it makes sense. And I've had many moments, even the last few weeks for me, have been, been a time like that of just some discouragement and struggles of like, God, are you going to come through? Are your promises? I know you've said those things, but I'm struggling with them. You know, doubts can creep in and you start to get frustrated and you start to question, did I hear it right? Am I listening right? Is this true? And we wrestle with those things. Abraham and Sarah did as well. And I have three things that came to my mind as I was thinking through. Holding fast to God's promises is great when we can see direct impact or we've, maybe we've seen it in our lifetime in a way that makes sense. But like Abraham and Sarah, I think it gets harder when the promises seem pretty incredible. That's the first blank there under point number one, incredible. Maybe the better word is insane. Insane. I, I think it was an insane, incredible promise that God made that you need to leave your land pack up and go. I'm not really going to tell you how it's going to work out. Just trust me. That feels pretty incredible. And yet Abraham obeyed. He went without knowing where he was going. And there are times that God calls us to do some crazy, ridiculous things or to go to maybe some unfamiliar or unclear places or destinations as well. Love hearing the stories at times of people that have stepped out in faith and gone. Sometimes it's overseas. Sometimes it's to do things right here in their own neighborhoods that are just, they're just nuts. You know, I think even hearing about the prison ministry to me, like that takes, that takes a level of faith of God. I see you at work. You can change even those who, who we deem to be unchangeable at times or have done some heinous things in their lives. It takes a level of trusting in God, a ridiculous faith of moving forward, saying, God, you can change hearts, even when it's incredible. Secondly, I think even when it's improbable, we need to hold fast to God's promises even when they're improbable. Not just incredible, but how about when they're improbable? Like, what were the chances that what God told Abraham and Sarah was actually going to work out? Like, put yourself in their shoes, right? Late 70s, you're going to have children, you're going to bless, bless us. Like, okay, God, like, I'm hearing this, we're willing to pack up. Maybe after year one, two, three, four, five, they're like, okay, but it's not happened yet, right? Still hasn't happened. Still, we're still wandering around in a tent. Sarah's still not pregnant. Like, this is starting to feel like a ridiculous, in the wrong kind of way. And their doubts had to creep in. It seemed pretty unlikely that these promises were going to be, be fulfilled in their lifetime. You know, that ship has sailed of having kids. Kids that would number the stars, they would have taken just one kid. That would have been like one star, and I believe would have settled to that. Again, it may have seemed likely when they were younger, but it became more and more improbable 
I know what that's like. You start out, you, you, you step out in faith, you risk something, and you're standing on the promises of God, whatever that is from His Word, and then it's taken some time. Things aren't working out how you thought they were. The way you envisioned it. Yeah, God, I'm with you. I'm willing to take this leap of faith. But, you know, by now I kind of thought I would feel that foundation. I'm still walking around living in a tent, and I'd rather be in an RV, okay? We've got a campground across the street from us, and uh, it's mostly RVs. Every once in a while, some fool goes out there in a tent, and there's no shade. It's ridiculous like this weekend. And I love to walk. We love to walk around. And I look at these Taj Mahal of, of RVs, right? They're worth more than my home, literally, I've asked. It's ridiculous, right? They're beautiful. That's what I want to travel in, is an RV with the air conditioning humming around, the full bathroom, the kitchen inside, the TV both inside and the one on the outside, right? But no, no, no. What is Abraham and Sarah? They're traveling around childish outside of their, of their land, living in a tent. And the probability of God's promises coming true is starting to fleet. Well, not only can it be incredible and improbable, but you know what else? It can be hard to stand on God's promises when it is inconceivable. Inconceivable. It's going to use the word impossible, but inconceivable seemed like the right fit there since she was trouble, trouble, had trouble conceiving a child. What about when you get to a place now it just feels impossible? Some of you, it's, it's praying for that, that family member or that friend who for years, maybe decades, still hasn't accepted Christ and you've come to a place of like, it's, it's just inconceivable that God cares about that person and desires them to be saved. Like, I've given up. Or some other thing that you've been holding fast to believing, maybe it's a, a wayward child, maybe it's a relationship that's broken and you're praying and you're pleading with God to bring healing and restoring and he has not answered that. And now you feel like it's inconceivable. As I was thinking about this, and Abraham and Sarah in, in particular today, I thought of my grandparents. I think I have a picture of them up there. Josh, I want to throw them up. All right, there's my grandparents. Now, about two months ago, my grandfather passed away. Up until about eight months, eight, nine months ago, Sarah and I had all eight of our grandparents still living, which is pretty amazing that all of our kids had eight of their great-grandparents still living, all living on their own and married. And in the last eight months, we've lost two of Sarah's grandparents and one of mine. But I, when I think of Abraham and Sarah, I, I think of my grandparents. I, I could really use any of ours, but I had this picture, so I'll, I'll use them today. And we called him Pops and, and Great Grammy, Grandma and Grandpa to me. And, and at the point that he died, he was almost 92, and my grandma, she's still living. She'll turn 90 uh, later this year. So they're pretty close to the age of Abraham and Sarah. And I'm guessing that's about what Abraham probably looked like. You live in a tent for 100 years, you're going to look a little frazzled like that, Right? Uh, my grandpa, we, we, he was near the end of, of his time here on earth, and we took that picture. Now, my grandma still looks pretty good. I called her this week, and I said, hey, grandma, I'm preaching. It was actually uh, Wednesday would have been their 70th anniversary. So they missed 70 years by just a couple months. And I, uh, I was just telling her, you know, that I love her, and I'm proud of her. And I said, you know, I'm preaching on Abraham and Sarah, and it's made me think of, of you and Pops, your faithfulness, your godliness, your willingness, you know, to follow after Jesus. And I said... You know, I, I mentioned to the kids that we were, you know, this Abraham and Sarah, and that, that, that Sarah, you know, was going to have a baby, and that she, if you remember the story, she laughs, right? She laughs. And, and so I said, I was telling the kids, I said, it would be like great Grammy having a baby. And you know what my kids did? They laughed, right? Because it's funny. And I said, but, I said, I mean, she's a beautiful woman. She's been her whole life. I said, but if anybody at 90 could have, could have a baby, Grandma, it's you, right? And then she laughed. And so we had some good laugh. But I think of them because... Sarah was about 90 years old, or around that, that age, 
when finally she conceived. And you don't have the time to go back to that story, but some, some strangers who are angels show up, and they mentioned to Abraham that Sarah's going to have a baby. And in the background, what does Sarah do? She laughs. Now, does anybody question why she laughed here? Not me. <laughs> like, I'm thinking, like, that's all you did was laugh? Like, I would have been mocking and, and doing all kinds of crazy things. And I can relate because there was one time that we found out we were pregnant that I laughed as well. If I go back a year and a half ago, I had made the decision to quit my job, to step out in faith, and we really had no idea how it was going to work. I had a, a good job. I was paid and compensated well, lots of security, insurance, all of that. And God was telling us to quit without telling us what the next step was. The night before I was going in to tell my boss that I was going to do that, Sarah was in Michigan visiting her family, and she called me, and she said, I'm pregnant. And I laughed, because we had been actively working to not get pregnant based on the fact that we were about to quit our job. And actually, your family here, my first comment to her was, who's the father, right? And then again, my second question, no, no, who's the father, right? And uh, I'm pretty sure I was. But... At that point, we were, we were like, no, 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 that's bad timing. Like, we're about to go into a season of financial strain and do this kind of crazy journey that we think God's calling us to. We got pregnant then. And uh, unfortunately, in, in, in the, early in the second trimester, she lost that baby. And that was hard, too, because we felt like God gave us that baby, this kind of ridiculous faith-based baby in this journey, and then he took that baby away. It was another stretching of us as we were trying to hold fast to God's promises, even in the midst of things that seemed incredible, improbable, inconceivable, or impossible. And you have those moments in your journey as well. That God brings you to places and he says, trust me. I'm sovereign, I'm good, I'm faithful. You need to trust who I am, who I've been. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing and showing us Abraham and Sarah. He knows we're going to struggle. He knows we're going to have, have doubts. He knows we're going to have stumbles. And he says, hold on, hold fast to the promises that I've made that those who have gone before you have held fast to as well. Now, in having said that, I think there's a couple things that, 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 that are ironic. Do you know what the word, the name Isaac means? It means laughter. And I find the humor in that, the irony of God in that to be, to be wonderful. So when they would say like, hey, laughter, come here. Hey, laughter, come over. Laughter, stop doing that right now. All right? It was this reminder that God finds great joy in upending what we think makes sense or how things should work. He loves to turn things on their head. And she did laugh, and she did doubt at some level, but a year later, what happened? She had a baby. Right? Even at that age, God loves to surprise us and say, what I told you will happen and will come true. Now that doesn't mean, this isn't in your, in your notes, but that doesn't mean that holding fast to God's promises doesn't mean it's a smooth and struggle and sin-free journey. It's not. Three things that came to mind as I think through the story of Abraham and Sarah. First is that, is that when we're seeking to hold fast to God's promises, it can cause us to doubt God's provision, Right? There are times I have, definitely in the last couple of years, and some moments I've felt peace and many moments I've thought, all right, God, God's not coming through. I've got to take over. I, be, I guess I better do it because I don't think it's going to happen. And I begin to doubt God's provision. We see this even with, with the story of Abraham and Sarah. Again, don't have the time to go back and look through all these stories. But as you start to navigate through, yes, he obeyed and yes, he set out. But soon after in his first journey, they show up in Egypt and uh, he lies, and he says that Sarah is his sister, right? At that time and age, if you had a beautiful wife, and it was clear that 
Sarah was quite lovely. Others wanted her, and they would move you out of the picture if they wanted to get her. So I, again, I don't really, like, struggle to understand why he did that, and yet it was still a doubting of God's provision. And so he lies and says, no, she's my sister. And so Egypt takes her in, and fortunately, before anything happens, God reveals to, to, to him, uh, the Pharaoh there, that, that they're actually married. But he doesn't do this once. He actually does it a second time. Later on with Abimelech, he does the same thing. Abraham says, oh, she's my sister. And again, before something can happen, Abraham talks, or God talks to Abimelech and says, no, 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 that's his wife. But he was taking matters into his own hands. We doubt that God will actually provide what we need. We see it a little bit later in that Abraham's going, okay, God, I, I know you said you're going to provide for me, but you know, I'm not getting any younger. And so I guess maybe, maybe that's going to be through one of my servants' kids or through some other means, kind of like maybe you want to let me know what you're going to do, God, because it's not, it's not working out. And so not only do they doubt God's permission, but they, they, they also do things on their own. They take some matters into their own hands. And so Sarah's getting a little restless too. It's pretty inconceivable, impossible that God's going to come through. So she, like we often do, we take matters into our own hands and she decides to give her husband Abraham, her servant, to be able to have a child. And so he sleeps with her, she conceives, and has Ishmael. And again, it's not hard for me to understand why this happened. It's easy for us to look back now knowing the whole story and be like, oh, that's crazy. Like, why would Abraham lie about his wife? Why would he take his, his, his servant, uh, his wife's servant, and have a child? And again, we know that to be wrong and that to be, you know, hijacking God's plan. But I also look at it and go like, man, as a sinner, I do that stuff all the time. I'll say out of one side of my, my mouth, I trust God, God's faithful and sovereign. I believe he'll come through. And at the other side, I'm thinking, how can I figure this out for myself? What do I need to do to try to make this work? Because God probably needs me to help him. And I better take matters into my own hands because I begin to doubt that God will come through. And then we decide to settle for less than God's best. Not only to doubt his provision and do it on our own, we, be, we decide to settle for less than God's best. And that's what Abraham and Sarah did because in that moment, even though they had faith, the struggle and the stumble and the sinfulness of that caused them to be able to hijack the process that God had for them and to take matters into their own hands. So as we hold on to the promises of God, we're going to struggle. Hear me today, we're going to struggle. I share those not to say, oh, be, don't be like them, be perfect. No, you're going to struggle too. I have mightily in this last year and a half wrestled with God, been angry with God, been frustrated with God, cried out to God, at the same time of seeking to trust him, I've had equal moments of peace and panic. Probably more panic than peace. Sometimes I used to think that I needed to have peace, and if I was at panic, then I was sinning. And now I realize, you know what, as a human being on this journey, there's peace and panic often at the same times. Peace because I trust God as sovereign, like Abraham did, and he's good, and he will come through. Panic because I'm a human who's full of sin and can only see this far in front of me. And so as I look at the story of Abraham and Sarah, why their faith was ridiculous and why they were included is because they were like you and me. They loved God. They trusted God, and yet they struggled. And we read through a story real quick, you know, eight, nine verses, ten verses, and we move on. Those were year after year after year after year after year after year. When we first made our decision to go on this ridiculous journey, it was like, all right, we were a month in. It was like, okay, God. Now it feels like it's been a long time. Like, what do you have for us? 
And then month two and three and four and then year one and then the beginning of the next. Like all of a sudden you begin to, it gets a lot harder. Holding fast to God's promise is what helps us endure and persevere through those times. And Abraham and Sarah had a persevering faith. And so, yeah, they laughed and they doubted and they did some things, but God still blessed them because deep down inside they trusted him and they held fast to his promises. Secondly, not just in descendants, God giving them descendants. And we know how the story ends. She gets pregnant and they have a son named Isaac. And from Isaac, we all come from, right? God has blessed through that numerous as the grains of the sand as they held to that promise, but they did not see that in their lifetime, right? Sarah died soon after. She only lived a handful of years after Isaac was born. Abraham lived a few more and had a few more kids, but not that much longer. And so they did not get to see the ultimate fulfillment of those descendants. But what kept them going is they were looking towards the future. Not only did they hold fast to God's promises, but they also had a conviction of things not yet seen. They held fast to that promise of a land. And this promise was equally incredible, improbable, and inconceivable or impossible as the descendants were. It was just as unlikely. For these two were wanderers, pilgrims set out, not knowing their destination. Even when they arrived in the land of Canaan, they lived like strangers in a foreign country, in tents, always ready to pack up and move. In their lifetime, from the point that God called them out and beyond, they never got to settle down. That's why we see in those verses, uh, which verses, let me look back, he says, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They had hope. They had a conviction and a belief that it would, that it would come. It says, Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They were holding on to a promise that was yet to come that they wouldn't see in their lifetime. And when you begin to look like Abraham and Sarah forward to the future, it causes you to do three things that I want to hit off at the end of your outline. One, you begin to live differently. Abraham and Sarah lived differently. One, they lived in tents. Now, back then, everybody lived in tents. So that wasn't what was so different. But their tents were nomadic. They continued to move around. Even when God brought them to Canaan, they continued to live like aliens and foreigners in that land. Even up to the point of their death, they left all their stuff and they were buried and they had no fulfillment of that land. But they believed that there was something far better coming. That they were not ultimately called to Canaan, but a city whose architect and builder is God. And so they lived differently than those of that that world with a hope that there was a future coming. I think about in our world today, there are many of us that are living, believing that this is all there is. Some of us, even as Christians, many of us who aren't, we're trying to get all that we can, which makes sense, right? If you believe this is all you have, if there is no future beyond this earth, you're going to live it up, right? You're going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. It's done. It's all I've got. In fact, one of the saddest conversations I had one time with, with a Christian was a guy that, uh, that I believe loves the Lord, and I think God has really grown his faith since then. And we were living in Philadelphia, and we were sitting, standing in his pool, cooling off one night, and just kind of chatting. And he said, John, he said, you know, I, I, I know there's a heaven, and I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to it. He said, but you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to get that excited about when my life's so good here right now. And it really struck me because I realized I have a tendency to do that as well. I can get very complacent and comfortable now. And my life doesn't look much different 
than the world around me. And I'm not suggesting this means we don't enjoy some of the comforts of life. Like, I appreciate the air conditioning in this room right now, okay? It's not, you know, let, let's, let's get rid of it all. I'm saying let's make sure that we're not putting our affections on the things of this world. That we're not just building a kingdom for here and, bo- and storing up treasure that will be used and exhausted here, but rather like Abraham and Sarah, we are, we are planning for the future knowing that the best is yet to come. We have to live differently. They moved forward because they saw God's promise to them as a call. This really struck me this week. Not just a promise of like, hey, here it is, and I'm just going to step back, get comfortable, wait, and look forward to when God fulfills it. They saw it as a call, meaning it required action and movement. I too often take a passive look or response to God's promise. Like, he made them. I just kind of step back. And God will just bring them to me, and he'll fulfill them, and life will be good. And yet we see here as God called Abraham and Sarah to courageously move forward. They knew that faithfulness is a form of courage that launches out into the unknown, moving into the future with God, knowing that the future is God's, and that some promises won't be realized in this life. Does that make sense? You see how they, they, they saw parts of it. They got kind of appetizers, previews of what was to come. But the main course was going to be waiting for them. And have, the best was going to be yet to come. And I struggle with that. Maybe you're like me. Because I want it now too. I want the promises of God to be now. In my journey the last couple of years especially, like it's been hard because I'm like, God, you need to hurry this up. Like I believe those promises, but I want to see some of them now. And he keeps saying, Wait. Wait, wait. I hate the word wait, right? Most of us are wired to hate that, but much of it is wait. I have something far better. Wait on me. And Abraham and Sarah, even in the midst of their struggles, stumbles, and sinfulness, were willing to wait on God. Not only do we need to live differently, we need to long expectantly. Live differently, and when we live differently, it causes us like Abraham and Sarah to long expectantly. If we look in in chapter 11... Again, if we go back to uh, verse 13, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them with afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles. And then if you jump down uh, to verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Right? They were longing for something that was so far better than the tents and the lives they were living. Because at that time, Abraham and Sarah were fairly wealthy. They had a lot of stuff. In fact, Abraham and Lot had to split at one point, his his nephew, because they had so many animals that the land couldn't fulfill uh, their needs. And so they were fairly wealthy for that time. So it wasn't that they were lacking some of the physical temporal things. But ultimately, they knew that God had something far better. How how is your longing? Your longing for heaven. Much of my life, my longing for heaven has not been strong. I'm, I find myself a little bit more like my friend who was kind of comfortable with where things were life and kind of wanted to invest into what I had here and didn't spend a lot of time longing for what was coming and understanding what God had. Last few years, God, God has changed that through some physical struggles. Um, I used to be able to eat whatever I wanted. I don't get to do that anymore. I'm longing to, to be in a place where I get to eat the way I used to and enjoy uh, what God has, has given uh, on, on this life. I'm longing because we've lost some loved ones that have been very precious to me to us. I mentioned 
uh, some grandparents and others. So we've had a couple miscarriages in the last couple years as well. So there's been a lot of loss. We lost a few cats as well. So we've said goodbye. So in fact, I was, I was talking to my kids. We, we talk about heaven a lot in our home because of that, because of some of the loss that we've experienced. We spent a lot of time talking about heaven. And so a couple weeks ago, we were sitting around the table, and, and we talk about this a lot. So this was an abnormal. And Sarah had said, hey, what are you most looking forward to when you go to heaven? Like, what are you longing for? We heard responses like, I can't wait to play with gorillas. I can't wait to run with the cheetahs. I can't wait to be reunited with the cats and our grandparents, right? And uh, we, we've actually had four miscarriages. So the four little ones that we've never had a chance to meet, we can't wait to be with them. And then our little six-year-old son, he said, son said, I can't wait to see the face of God. You know, and I thought, wow, you know, all those other things, I don't know if cheetahs and all that will be in heaven. You know, it's not mine to be concerned about right now. I know that God will have prepared what I need and will bring me the most joy and glorify him the most. But I do know that he will be there. And I do know that those that we've loved that have gone before us will be there. And that makes my longing for heaven so strong that even in the midst of the struggles and trials and tribulations of this world, our ridiculous faith gives us a longing for something that's so much greater. We can long expectantly. And finally, we can love gratefully. Live differently, long expectantly, love gratefully. As we look towards moving towards the future, it causes us to love gratefully. Uh, Verse 16, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We love gratefully because our God has prepared a city for us. He has prepared a future dwelling place called heaven where we will be with him. That's the greatest part. The prize is Jesus. The prize is the presence of God. All the other stuff that we spend a lot of time longing for, which are not wrong, are secondary to being in the presence of God and that fact that he is not ashamed of us. Well, I'd I'd love for it to be said that God was not ashamed of John Culver. That he was his God and that he's preparing for him a city. And part of how God is not ashamed of us is that we hold to his promises and we hold fast to them, even when they're improbable and inconceivable and impossible. And that we look to the future and we live differently and we long expectantly and we love God gratefully because of what's to come. We love him gratefully for what's to come in this life and what we have here, but we love him gratefully because he's not ashamed of He has not discarded us. He has not neglected us. Every single one of his promises will come true. Every single one. And every single person in Hebrews chapter 11, all but Enoch, right? Enoch was the one lucky soul that God took right to heaven as an example of somebody who walked with him. But every other person, they struggled, they had trials, they had tribulations, Some were maimed and sawed in two and put to death by the sword. Some experienced a fiery end. Some a very painful end. Some died of old age. We will experience some of those things ourselves today. But we have the hope and the conviction of things not seen that our God will come through. And we hold fast to these these witnesses, these heroes that have gone before us in Hebrews chapter so as I close, let me, let me just ask this question. How do we measure up with respect to these two dimensions of faith? Some of us here today find it easy to hold fast. We know the stories. You know the stories of the Bible. You know the stories of faithfulness in other people's lives. You know the stories of faithfulness even in this church. 
stories of generosity and faithfulness and sacrifice. And, and we hold fast to those. These, these stories matter because the stories we tell and make our own give us our bearings, right? I, I love to tell stories. I love to look back on the faith of, you know, like my grandparents, to look back on their faith and tell those stories to my kids. I love to talk about heaven and what it's going to look like and to long expectantly. Stories are important. I love to point to men and women who have gone before us that have done great things for the Lord. They help us work out where we stand and who we are and what we ought not to do and what we need to do. But when we hold fast, some of us, we find it harder to move forward into the future. We're not that fond of tents, and we travel with a lot of baggage. So we're holding fast, but we're having, we're having trouble looking forward to what's to come. I think that's some of us here today. Others of, of us have little trouble moving forward. We like to camp. We like to travel light. We ask, where can we join in what God is doing right now? We're a people on the way, on the move, knowing that the future belongs to God. But we need help holding fast, learning the story of God's faithfulness to promise. We need to know of loyalty and endurance and persevere even when the path is long and rough. That's where I am. Like, I, I'm much more, I, I need perseverance, I need endurance. I need to hold fast in the moment, not just know where the end's going to be, but the day by day, trusting God in the little ways, holding fast, persevering like Abraham and Sarah. Friends, we need both dimensions of faith. You need to hold fast, and you need to look forward. The promises of God are true. The power of the examples in Hebrews chapter 11 are inspiring to us. And my hope, my prayer on this Father's Day is that we would begin to evidence that level of ridiculous faith that holds fast to God's promises, that moves forward, trusting that God and God alone will fulfill what he has promised.